We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, this is Cheryl Broderson, and I'm here with the second part of A Woman Worth Knowing, and that yes. woman is... Jean Bray. And we left you on quite a cliff. Yes, she's in the middle of all of this political intrigue, as you might remember. Here she is, uh, part of the French aristocracy, the French royalty, really. And she's caught up in all of the politics and all of the chaos that was going on between the Catholics and the Protestants. Huguenots. They were Huguenots, as yes, Huguenots the, in yes, French. the French ones. But um, in France. But something interesting, too, is we just heard last week how her love of her life, Antoine. Antoine, yes. Who uh, just betrayed her mm-hmm. over and over again, mm-hmm. just betrayed her um, for political reasons. Yeah. But We also learned that he wasn't such a great guy to begin with. No, he had a wandering eye and he was unfaithful and not only unfaithful to her, but unfaithful to God. You know, really, he had claimed to be a Protestant or he had claimed to have faith at least. Yes. Yeah. Have some kind of faith initially. And then he just did an about face. And that was just devastating for Gene, obviously. But he's just he died on our last episode. Yes. It's like, wow, dang, what a way to go down in flames here. And so, yeah, he died in battle fighting for the Catholics, actually. And he and she's now back in Navarre. Back in Navarre and Birn. So these are two kind of linked territories that her family uh, reigned over. And you guys might recall that, that after her dad had died, she and Antoine in 1555 had taken over uh, ruling Navarre and Birn. And so she had gone there. Antoine had died. And so now she's just in a totally different phase of life here because with his death, Jean becomes the brunt of all the political force involving her little kingdoms here. And so she did phenomenal work to strengthen Biern. It was said that her reorganization of the economic and judicial system was so sound that it remained in force well into the 18th century. That's pretty remarkable. I mean, mm-hmm. and again, this mm-hmm. is a, a, a woman doing this. We usually think of the men in that era being the you know administrators and the politicians and so capable in these areas. But boy, she really was such a so, capable governor. It, and it lasted 200 years. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's remarkable. Pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just, you know, the practical side of the administration of, of the kingdom that she was able to succeed in. She also made Protestantism the official religion of Biern. I believe I'd mentioned that before. And, oh, no, sorry, that was Navarre and Biern. Both of them now had Protestantism as their official religion. And she did her utmost, quote, to instill the Reformation in her lands through legislation and institutional changes as much as through sponsoring theological work. And so her reforms were not just practical, economic, they were spiritual as well. And and so it wasn't and it wasn't even just about the theology on every level. She wanted to make sure that the word of God was being adhered to as much as possible throughout the kingdom. And, And it's really pretty interesting, too, when you contrast this with the chaos and the violence that was really starting to envelop the rest of France. As we kind of touched on, civil wars began to break out as the Counter-Reformation really heated up. And so you've got, again, these these wars between the Huguenots and the Catholics going on in France. And yet here we have this little territory of Biern made into a, quote, a liberal tolerant territory. In fact, one historian named Artigues said that Jean made the first official proclamation of religious toleration within a single kingdom in European history. 
that's something nobody ever hears about. You know, we hear about these other kingdoms. I, I remember reading in uh, some history books about the Netherlands and how they were very tolerant and some of the different, you know, edicts that were issued later on. But Jean was the first to really establish in any kind of kingdom religious tolerance in Europe. I mean, that's just really amazing. And like her mother, she wrote essays to defend and persuade others. Cool. To, to do the same thing. thing. Yes. And oh, she I was known for these essays. And then I don't know if you knew this, that she also had the Bible translated into Yes. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that part. I mean, she Perfect. really uh, did some remarkable things. Mm -hmm. uh, her efforts led one reformer to say that the Queen of Navarre has banished all idolatry from her domains and sets an example of virtue with incredible firmness and courage. But the drama doesn't end there. It's not mm. like, oh, she lived happily ever after mm -mm. in Biern and Navarre. <laughs> nope. Mm -mm. The king of Spain, Philip II, he wanted Jean to marry one of his sons. And she actually was open initially to negotiations with Spain. You know, her father had been, and maybe she thought, oh, I'm going to carry on his greatest desire that I would join with Spain because then we'd have peace and this buffer state would be safe. Mm -hmm. But King Philip demanded that she renounce her Calvinist heresies, as he called them. And so at that point, she slammed the door in his face by saying, I mean, she didn't just refuse him politely. She said, although I am just a little princess, God has given me the government of this country so I may rule it according to his gospel and teach it his laws. I rely on God who is more powerful than the king of Spain. And so he lashed back at her and said, this is quite too much of a woman to have as a daughter-in-law. I would much prefer to destroy her and treat her as such an evil woman deserves. Isn't that awful? So, I, yeah, kind of looks like things fell apart there a little bit. Yes. No marriage. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think so. So in, in 1563, the king of Spain actually tried to start a rebellion in Navarre. Uh, in order to draw Jean out and capture her. He was so upset. He was going to try to find some way to ruin her. But it's kind of funny because he makes this plot to start this rebellion. And his wife, the Queen of Spain, goes behind his back and warns Jean. Wow. <laughs> All right. So the women united here on this one because she saw this is just wrong. Mm -hmm. There's no cause for this at all. Uh, and then later there was a plot to kidnap Jean and deliver wow. her up to the Spanish Inquisition. Wow. And we know nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. No. But you know what? Here we go. This shows how powerful she is. Mm -hmm. You know, you can often tell how, how influential, how powerful it is. A person is by how many enemies yeah. and how violent and obsessive yeah. you know, their enemies are. It really was very obsessive. You might even recall back when we did the podcast on Madame Guyon, how like these uh, priests and bishops would interrogate her for eight to 12 hours at a time. I mean, just this desire to bring people down. It's really, really demonic, really. And so Spain was not alone in pressuring Jean that year. So 1563 was just a really bad year for her. <laughs> because of her stand for her faith in Biern and Navarre, again, remember, she had made it the official faith of those two kingdoms. The Pope started to get alarmed by this. And one historian said it was disturbing enough that John Knox had created a Calvinist establishment in Scotland. But if it were allowed to develop in Biern, it might spread throughout France, a far more serious challenge to the church. I think it was like, well, we can give up Scotland, whatever. You know, they're close to the Anglican Church anyway. But, man, France is like one of the main strongholds of Catholicism it in was, Europe. And is. so, I mean, gosh, to, mm -hmm. to lose that would be devastating. And so, like you were saying, another reason why you see 
she must have had some influence and must have been an important person to have all of this attention on her and all of these people feel so threatened. The Pope actually threatened to confiscate her property and her possessions and sent his ambassador to issue these threats. And Jean replied, and here's what she said to the Pope's ambassador. And you've got to, it's really hard for us to really put ourselves in this position here. But I mean, this is just so bold what she was doing here and, and what she was saying. To the Pope's ambassador, she said, you appeal to your authority as the Pope's legate. The authority of the Pope's legate is not recognized in Biern. Mm. I mean, just to completely shut him down. Mm-hmm. I mean, and again, consider the fact not only is this the Pope, who still at this point had so much political power, the Reformation is, you know, yes, the reformers are gaining power, but the church is still very, very strong, a very strong entity, especially in France. But you're talking about a woman who's ruling some small kingdoms. It's not like she could say, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to attack you. And she didn't have a lot of political force or military power. And she's a woman. Mm -hmm. This is all just such a remarkable I mean, so remarkable. She continued on and said, as to the Reformation, I am most earnestly resolved by the grace of God to continue throughout the land of Biern. I have learned from my Bible, which I read more than the works of your doctors, that I might be reproached if professing myself a servant of God, I did not destroy idols in consecrated places. Neither have I undertaken, as you assert, to implant a new religion, but only to restore the ruins of the ancient faith." which is so solid. This is exactly what all the reformers were doing. And that was their argument. That's what they kept telling the church. We're trying to get back to the gospel. We're trying to get back to the word of God. You know, what the apostles were teaching. We're not coming up with some new idea. So I I, I just am so amazed. Again, if you can kind of try to put yourself in her shoes and see what a bold stand this was. It's so inspiring that she had this kind of strength of conviction for her faith to go, you know, take a stand against the church and the government. (laughs) I I have another quote that she said to Mm. the cardinal, your feeble arguments do not dent my tough skull. I am (laughs) serving God and he knows how to protect his cause. Oh, I love it. That's a great one. Isn't that amazing? Oh, it's so good. So oddly enough, the Pope's threats actually worked out in Jean's favor because when Catherine de' Medici heard about this. And remember, she's still behind the scenes ruling France, this time through her son, Charles IX. That's who was on the throne at this point. And France is having a struggle for Europe's domination. Mm-hmm. So there is... Oh, there's... Yeah. Because the Pope is ruling from Italy. Mm-hmm. And France wants the papacy to be in France, not Italy. And, you know, her name is Medici, right? So she wants oh, to move Medici's. it where yeah, she There has was Medici power. who was a pope at That's one right. point. Yeah. So Leo the you've Tenth, got all this intrigue, yeah. you know, between Spain and France and Italy. And again, it's political. It's all this political garbage. Exactly. Exactly. And so because of that, because of the pope coming in and trying to discipline Jean and threaten Jean, Catherine was not having that. She's like, wait a minute. This is still my kingdom. I'm Catholic, you know, but this is still Mm -hmm. my kingdom. And so she felt like this was gross overreach on the part of the Pope in trying to go over her head. And so, like I said, this actually worked out to Jean's advantage because now Catherine's upset with him Mm -hmm. (laughs) and almost like on Jean's side a little bit. So Jean's kind of stuck here in the middle of the higher powers as they're fighting against one another. And so she decided very astutely to return to Catherine's court for a time to appease her. I'll just come under you here. I'll come to Paris and hang out for a little bit. Smart move. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, uh, Antoine had taken away their son to the royal court. And so in 1566, this is a couple years later now, when he was 13 years old, Jean decided, I need to bring him back home to Navarre. 
Antoine's not there anymore. He's getting bad influence here in the royal court. And this was a natural thing for a mother to want her son with her. I, I don't think this is too much to ask. But again, remember, she's dealing with higher powers here and whatever they say goes. And so she was not allowed to just take him away. So basically, she had to kidnap him. She arranged like this kind of, and again, all this intrigue that went on <laughs> throughout her life. She pretended to bring uh, her son, Henry, out uh, horseback riding. And then they made for a, a run for it. She arranged for a military escort from Navarre to show up. And then they just like basically booked it to get back to Navarre. And it was pretty crazy, but it actually worked. She was able to get him sequestered away, I guess, a spirited away to Navarre. And so soon after this, two years later, a third civil war broke out uh, in 1568. And at this point, Jean's life was threatened by the Spanish and French Catholics. Everybody was so upset with her at this point for taking these strong stands for the reformers. And so she fled to the Protestant stronghold of La Rochelle with her son. And obviously at this point, she couldn't really focus on her own domain alone. You know, she could only do so much by proxy in Birna Navarre. So she, at this point, she threw her lot in with the cause of Protestantism nationwide throughout France. And she became basically the Huguenot minister of propaganda and head of government for three years. And so her job was to get aid from all kinds of foreign dignitaries, anybody who was willing to support the Reformation cause. She used all of her her influence and, um, you know, just her... She, she did have a pretty winning personality. A lot of people really found her engaging and wanted to support what she was doing. And this was when she funded, like you mentioned earlier, the translation and publication of the Bosque New Testament. So, I mean, so much that she was doing on the side. I, I, she contributed her own wealth to the cause. She watched over thousands of refugees that were coming into La Rochelle. She sponsored the building of a new seminary. Interesting. I don't know how in the middle of all this war they decided, well, we should have a seminary here for all these students to study. But they, they went ahead and did that. I suppose it was just making the most of the opportunity. And she would accompany the head of the military, the head of the army, on his inspections, rallying the troops. I mean, again, she had become quite a figurehead. Like I said before, she probably didn't realize it early on when she made that initial confession of faith, but she had become a real and, hero. And she's in her 30s, yeah, probably her late 30s, maybe early, early 40s at this point. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that makes it even just so remarkable yeah. when you consider her age. Yes. Yeah, totally. Uh, and at one point, there was a, you know, it was kind of a low point in the military campaign. And uh, she was quoted as saying to the men, I swear to defend to my last sigh the holy cause, which now unites us, which is that of honor and truth. And so they figured, again, if this woman could take that kind of a bold stand and have this courage and really have that strength of conviction that the gospel is true, that the Bible is needs to be proclaimed uh, in the nation of France, then, well, then, gosh, we can we can do the same. So even though she was physically weakening more and more, and we got to keep that in mind throughout all this time, I mean, she had health issues throughout her life, and yet her conviction and courage kept her and the Huguenots, uh, Huguenots strong. And so finally, peace terms were made, and the king uh, told the Huguenots to lay down their arms uh, it was a real fierce battle, and the Huguenots really held their own. Again, a lot of that had to do with Jean's encouragement and her passion. And so he says, okay, fine, we'll, we'll come to some kind of an agreement here. Just lay down your arms. And Jean replied and said, we have come to the determination to die all of us rather than abandon our God and our religion, the which we cannot maintain unless permitted to worship publicly any more than a human body can live without meat and drink. 
And so, again, remember, the reason why they were having to take this kind of a stand was because the union, the political um, union with the church. And and so because of all of that, it made these people have to take really strong, strong stands in order to gain any kind of religious tolerance or freedom because you were always going against a government entity as well. And so she made sure that the king understood we'd rather die than make any concessions here to our faith. We're not going to just give in and surrender to you. And so finally, the Peace of Saint-Germain was signed by Charles IX, and it allowed freedom of worship in France, except for the city of Paris. (laughs) So if you were outside Paris— you could be free to practice your faith. And that was huge. I mean, that okay, it's like, all right, we would have loved to have Paris as well, but fine, we'll take what we can get. And yet even this concession was too much for the Catholics. They were really upset. And so this was a very uneasy piece and they were barely able to maintain unity. And so the king was now trying to exercise his rightful authority, which he should have. But remember, Catherine de' Medici is still there pulling strings behind the scenes and trying to overrule with her own plans. And so her idea was, hey, why don't we get Henry of Navarre, Jean's son, to marry my daughter? And her daughter's name was Marguerite. I love how these people were so not original with their names. I mean, how many Marguerites have we talked about? How many Henrys? Anyway. (laughs) At least they numbered them. Yeah, it's true. They numbered them to help us out here. (laughs) So she said, hey, Jean, we'll get your son, Henry, my daughter, Marguerite, together. This will unite faiths, and that will unite France. In her mind, that would be the best way to bring it about. And Jean was in turmoil over this proposal. But again, she was somewhat powerless to stop it. You know, it was very rare when she had been able to take a stand and, and... run away and uh, from her husband and get her marriage annulled. That was so unusual. Normally, you could not stop something like this. If the higher powers said, we're doing this, that's what was going to happen. And Catherine Medici was so oh, powerful. She was, and, and just cruel. So, And it did look like a chance to maybe through marriage, through an alliance of mm-hmm. the child of a reformer mm-hmm. and a Catholic, Catholic. Yeah. To bridge and to make peace. Yes. And that was the one point that Jean felt would help her. Compelled. Yeah, compelled to do this. It, yeah. it kind of made her able to walk in this because she was really afraid Henry would revert to Catholicism and just lax living, you know, in Paris. He would just become really carnal. But she did see the importance of preserving the peace of Saint-Germain. It's like, okay, we've gotten this far. Maybe this is the only option we have. And it's better than nothing. And so in 1572, she began the marriage negotiations in Paris. Uh, She was horrified (laughs) at all of the vice and licentiousness, the decadence of the court. So it was kind of what she had feared. And so she wrote to Henry and said, I wish you to be married and retire with your wife from this corruption. Although I knew it was bad, I find it even worse than I feared. If you were here, you would never escape without a special intervention from God. You have doubtless realized their main object, my son, is to separate you from God and from me. You can understand my anxiety for you. I beg you, pray to God. So you see that they were using the title Roman Catholic mm. as a covering or for their vice. Yes. You know, at least we're loyal to the, you know, to the, the church, to the church, yeah, the original church. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really not sincere. It was a covering for their vice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, because to be fair, you know, there were genuine Catholics who really did love God. Absolutely. But among the royalty, yeah. I mean, they didn't care. It was all, like you said, like a label to make them look like they were Mm -hmm. Minding their P's and Q's. So, (laughs) but what I love about this quote is that, you know, the political arrangement 
That was important, but that wasn't what most concerned Jean. Her son's spiritual life was what really concerned her. Henry's walk with God was more important than any political ambition or achievement for her family. And I love that that at the heart of it, she always knew this is a spiritual thing, son. Keep that in mind. Yes. So she really had such discernment and insight. And again, nobody else really operated that way in that day. So sadly, Jean was never able to see her son's marriage. Um, She was able to arrange for special conditions for the wedding so that it would be reformed. But again, remember, her health was so bad. At this point, it finally overtook her. Again, we think she probably had tuberculosis. And so she passed away. You know, it's interesting, though, Mm because I read that many suspected that she was poisoned. Yes, I saw that somewhere. And that that's debated. It, mm-hmm. it was possible. They're like, well, I don't know. We don't think so. But maybe. I mean, it could have been. Who yeah, knows? It was so funny because I read like all these possibilities. She was yeah. poisoned, appendicitis, <laughs> oh, uh, tuberculosis. Yeah. There were uh, and a blockage. There were oh, all these gosh. different um Explanations? Uh, suggestions. suggestions. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. We may never know. There was so much intrigue, you guys, back then. And some of these things we might never know. I mean, gosh, you know, thinking about, you know. Yes. Mary Queen of Scots poisoning her husband. There's all those things that are right. like, did that really happen? <laughs> but but so. interestingly enough, I mean, you, you're going to talk about Jean's death. And then we'll talk about Catherine's yes, yes. awfulness. So, <laughs> so like I said, though, uh, she did finally pass away June 9th, 1572. And it's interesting, the timing of this. I almost feel like this was a mercy from the Lord because two months later, Catherine de Medici instigated uh, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of the Protestants, which was just horrific and uncalled for. And, you know, people say, well, we don't know if Catherine really did it, but she really was the prime political player. And and all of the clues point to her initiating this. Well, they say that what she did at the wedding is she took note of who the Protestant leaders were and the wedding itself was a ruse. Yes. So that Catherine Medici and Charles would know who the leaders were in the Protestant or in the Huguenot church mm-hmm. so they could go after them. Yeah, it was it was gross it what was ended up ruse. happening. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, also that Jean Albert, um, I read that she, when she was dying, she was having the Gospel of John read to her. Oh, I love it. Man, what a girl. She was mm-hmm. so great. And it's interesting. It was kind of prophetic, really, um, in a way. Well, I guess she just had great insight. She wrote a letter to the Queen to Queen Elizabeth of England. They communicated pretty frequently, which oh, is pretty cool. Yeah. Yes. And she wrote talking about the final decision for Henry and Marguerite to be married. And Jean said, events which order the destinies of great personages are usually so beset with difficulties that it is impossible to divine their conclusion. Almost as if she knew I don't that something's going to happen with all of this, and I I can't tell what direction this is going to go. I wonder if she had a clue that Catherine was up to something. But, you know, she wouldn't know. Jean wouldn't live to find out that her son's faith was not as strong as hers. He did convert to Catholicism for diplomatic reasons like so many did. But Jean had done her utmost to train him up in the way he should go. And it's really neat because he became king, uh, Henry IV, uh, in 1589. And it should be noted, nine years later, in 1598, this was a really important moment. In 1598, he issued the Edict of Nantes, which did grant absolute freedom of religion to the Protestants all over the nation of France. And so it's neat because, yes, maybe he he personally took the diplomatic way out by saying uh, Paris is worth a mass and becoming Catholic. But he always had that example of his mom's lodged in his heart. And so he made sure that the Protestant faith was officially tolerated. The Edict of Nantes was really, really important. And it lasted almost 100 years until 
stinking Louis the Fourteenth came around. It was around, super but. <laughs> important um, when you consider the Feast of Saint Bartholomew's, yes. because literally tens and tens of thousands of innocents were slaughtered. I yeah. mean, we're talking about men, women, and children. Sick. Yeah. And that mobs ran wild through the streets, broke into houses, killing Huguenots. It was like there was a bounty on Huguenots. <sighs> yeah. And it Man. was like the French Revolution, but it was turning on the, the Huguenots. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was just terrible. Mm-hmm. So when you've got this edict of, of, of nuns, it's so dynamically important because Mm. all of a sudden, but you know what's interesting, even after the St. Bartholomew slaughter, um, the Huguenots continued to grow. Yeah. They continued to multiply. You know, honestly, they said that my grandmother claimed to be her family, Huguenots, that had fled to Ireland and then to uh, the United States. That's really cool. Yes. Fun. Wow. Fun mm-hmm. facts with Cheryl fun here. Facts, Look at yes. that. So. And she was, her family uh, claimed to be from the south, from like uh, the area of That would Bosque. have been where, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the, where the Bosque region was. Yes. And, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Isn't that interesting? So I've always loved the Huguenots. I've loved books oh, on yeah, the Huguenots. Oh, yeah. I see why. But these, these incredible people that kept their faith and through so much yeah. um, awful uh, persecution. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's so insane. And so, I mean, yeah, I get, like you said, the edict of, is, is it Nantes? Nantes, however you would N-A-N-T-E-S. say it. N-A-N-T-E-S. Yeah. I don't know okay. how to say it. In, Figure it out, with folks. With a French you can, yeah. or a Navarrean <laughs> accent. As you will. Yes. <laughs> so, but that's, again, uh, why the edict of Nantes was so important. And, again, we can see very clearly the fingerprints of Jean d'Albray on there and in uh, through the life of her son. And so she lived so boldly for the cause of Christ and the gospel in France. And again, just to reiterate, it is so remarkable that she seemed to be one of the only people in the whole French aristocracy, other than Renee and a couple others, right, who really uh, got it spiritually. It really connected and clicked. And she alone seemed to realize that, hey, this goes beyond politics, folks. This goes beyond alliances. This goes beyond wars. It's a question of living for Jesus alone, for the kingdom of God, for an eternal kingdom, not for the kingdom of France, and living for uh, the truth of his word without compromise. Um, Sjerna said, Jean's bravery and religious commitment in this precarious context was quite remarkable, admired even by her enemies who wished her ill. After all, she chose to confess the Protestant faith in a poisonous context in which feuding noble families were willing to end each other's lives for the sake of religious faith and political differences. And so I just think, man, that's such an incredible testimony to us. You know, I, I, I've always been inspired by Jean, and I'd forgotten about her for several years. And so it was fun to kind of look back through her story and just, I don't know, be inspired to have that kind of clear-minded focus on the Lord, on on the truth of God's word, and, and not to back down under any circumstances or for any earthly pressure. Don't you or love it? Reasons. She didn't back down even though she was a woman. I mean, yeah. talk about prejudice in that day. Oh, yeah. On I every mean, level. That's right. But because of the Lord mm. and because of her strong faith in scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And she's dealing too with, you know, kind of like what we were talking about with with Catholics who were, you know, quote, religious, maybe they were in name only, but they were claiming to be, you know, quote, Christians as well. Right. And even with these so-called Christians telling her to just go with the flow, go easy, calm down, don't be so 
rebellious and revolutionary. That didn't matter. She had a true conviction from God, you know, again, a work of the Holy Spirit in her life. I think, you know, even pointing back to that letter that John Calvin had written, where it said that she had that that moment in a space of a few hours where everything changed. I, I believe that was a real work of the Spirit in her life to say, Gene, I'm raising you up for such a time as this to take this stand. And she walked in that. So I love Jean Delray. <laughs> I do, too. And she is definitely a woman worth knowing. And again, we don't want to leave out the fact that her mother had obviously yes. been an inspiration in her life. Yeah. Look at this. These generations. Marguerite had an influence on her. She had an influence on her son, Henry. Very cool. Very excellent. So we're so glad you joined us um, on learning about Jean um, Delbray, but we want you to write us too if you mm-hmm. have a woman worth knowing. And just if you could just write and tell us how this is ministering to you, you can reach us at <laughs> wwk at cccm.com. So we have more women for you. We have so many more oh, women. Oh, yes. And we're enjoying ourselves. We hope yeah, you're enjoying yeah, it yeah, too. Yeah, exactly, because we're going to keep going. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so until next week, this is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut saying, God bless you. And we're so glad you're a woman worth knowing. Yes, indeed. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut.